Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out ce.vcu.health.org slash Cribsiders for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Yay! Yay! Starting off with some weird energy. <laughs> Always. Always, always. We are joined tonight by an outstanding guest, Dr. Ken Roberts, uh, to discuss urinary tract infections. He literally wrote the book, wrote the guidelines and UTIs. What a what a treat, Chris. It was great. It was wonderful. It was great. It was a wonderful show. But you know, before we get into the show, how about we we tell our fans what we do here? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Excellent. So Dr. Roberts has a national reputation as an educator, clinician, and leader in pediatrics. He served as the president of two national organizations and on the American Board of Pediatrics Board of Directors. He's received numerous honors, including teaching awards from students and residents, as well as recognition from national organizations. He was a member of the task force that initiated the evidence-based guidelines at the American Academy of Pediatrics, and he's been the lead author of the AAP UTI guidelines and co-lead author of the forthcoming AAP febrile infant guidelines. He teaches us about diagnosing and treatment of urinary tract infections, the importance of pyuria as a factor, and when to use ultrasound or VCUG to assess for reflux. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, boy, Chris, if you like UTI pearls, you're in luck. <laughs> that was actually not bad. <laughs> yeah, you're in pun. <laughs> So we are so excited to have you for the show, Dr. Ken Roberts. I should ask, we often ask if it's okay with our guests if we call you by your first name because we're informal and fun. Can we call you Ken? If I can call you Justin. You can call me Justin. So, But I, I go by the Chew Man. But the Chew, yeah. Chris goes by the Chew Man. So we're very excited for having you. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. And, you know, we always like to give guests the opportunity to let our listeners learn a little bit about them and who they are. And so can you start by giving us a one-liner, Can you an introduction in, in the medical one-line format? <laughs> right. It's elderly gentlemen. So I've been around for a while and I've had the good fortune to be involved with a number of the pediatrics organizations, even been president of two of them. But I presume that the reason I'm invited today is that I've been involved with the clinical practice guideline effort at the Academy of Pediatrics since it started 30 years ago. Um, and I'm the lead author of the UTI guidelines and the co-lead author of the forthcoming management of febrile infants guideline. We've been waiting for that one for a while. We'll have yeah. to do an episode on that too, but we're very excited to have you. We're going straight to the top as far as UTI guidelines. We're going straight to to the expert about how we can manage pain in the urine. So I think this is going to be great. So my favorite question to ask at the beginning of the show is, what is your favorite failure and how? what did you learn from it? Well, I don't know that I have a favorite failure and probably have many from which to choose. So I'll talk about the one that I have carried with me the longest. It was as a second year resident in the walk-in clinic. There was always a long wait, sometimes many hours uh, to be seen. And so we felt the pressure to be quick. And I recall one girl who was on uh, antithyroid medication for her Graves disease, who presented with a very high fever 
and actually data pharyngitis. Terrible sore throat clinically as well as what it looks like on exam. And somehow I was aware of the fact that the antithyroid medication she was on could result in agranulocytosis with one of the clues being the kind of pharyngitis, the high fever and sore throat. So I was very concerned and set her up for admission, so forth. Didn't want to wait for the results of the CBC. I sent her up to the inpatient service and got a call about an hour, hour and a half later uh, that her CBC was back and she had atypical lymphocytosis. And between that and her other symptoms and the big spleen, it was clear she had infectious mono. And I realized that in my cursory exam of her abdomen, with her being as sick as she was, I actually missed the spleen. So I went up to the inpatient service. At that point, she was settled in. It was pretty easy to feel that spleen. And it didn't make much of a difference for her and her care. She was still going to be in the hospital. But it certainly resonated with me that cutting that corner of doing a cursory abdominal exam because I thought I already had the diagnosis and the major concern, I might miss a spleen in somebody else where it would be critical. And so that idea of not cutting corners in the physical exam, being careful to do a thorough physical exam has stuck with me. That was either 1970 or 1971. Wow. That is a good detail-oriented physical exam. I, you know, I know it's been a long time, but I would say don't give yourself too hard a time for missing splenomegaly in the class. <laughs> I, uh, I think it's a great lesson. I probably already missed a splenomegaly in well, mono. Something I remember a couple of years later, I volunteered during one of the resident picnics to uh, work in the screening clinic. And that all came back to me when I saw a child who had kind of a straightforward situation, but decided now I've got to examine, I've got to take her clothes off and examine her. And as soon as I took off her shirt, I saw the marks on her back that were evident of abuse. Oh my God. You know, it's kind of remarkable how often that lesson comes back to teach you that cutting the corner is not necessarily making things faster. Now, Ken, you may not know this, but Justin actually has a huge interest in physical exam. He's actually has a whole project on teaching other people physical exams through our other podcast. We're going to work on it, although this is a very inspirational story of I aspire to be someone who is that detail-oriented and that paying attention to the little things. Because I think sometimes it's easy to have that drop off in clinic or in the hospital when you're trying to move patients, you're trying to make quick diagnoses and see people. And I think that it, that's what's detrimental about that. So that's... Of course, it helps to have been from an era where the tests that we had available to us were limited. Uh, there was no CT. There was no MRI. So, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Let me ask, one of the questions I always love hearing is what, what people are reading, what kind of books they read. Is there a book recommendation that you can give our audience of a book that you think every person involved in medicine should read, or or if not a book, a movie, a TV show, a song, any form of media consumption will take? Well, I, I would hate to say that my taste should influence what everybody needs to read, but if I had one book that I would say should resonate with everybody, it would probably be Cutting for Stone, mm. any number of them. Aerosmith is another one that particularly these days is quite relevant about whether we should be rushing to a vaccine, whether we should be doing um, good science, what's the balance between providing clinical care and doing research. There are any number. 
<laughs> Those are great. Yeah. I feel like we've had some Abraham Verghese recommendations in the past. Aerosmith, I think that's the first, and that yes. that is a throwback. <laughs> I I remember trying to read that when I was younger, and I think I was a little ahead of my time, and I was not quite ready for Aerosmith. But uh, good book. Maybe I'll go back. Well, I think if you read it then and read it now and read it again in 10 or 15 years, you will probably find it to be three different books. I could see um, that. It was the issue then about somebody who was altruistic and had very high ideals and so forth, and then got put into a position where he had to figure out whether he needed to compromise them. So very useful at the beginning of a career. And then as you reflect back, of course, the relevance now is the COVID epidemic and yeah. what you need to be doing. So I read The House of God when I was younger and thought it was a parody and then reread it after residency and realized it was just a biography. It was just a autobiography. <laughs> well, you may also know that in terms of having uh, that kind of idealism that Sinclair Lewis refused an award for the book. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I remember that, Fader. That's another inspirational story. All right, Chris, you want let's let's jump in. Yeah, let's yeah. get you some content. Let's let's treat some kids with UTIs. What do you say? Oh, we have to figure out they have a UTI first. Good. See, that's the detail orientation that we're aspiring to have. You want to start us off, Chris, or you want me to? I, I can read it. I can read it. You got All it. Right. Hit it. All right. So here, here we got a case from Cash Like Children's. All right. So we have a six-month-old uh, full-term female infant pre presenting to your clinic with one day of fever with a Tmax 102.7 and fussiness. Her mother noted some mild congestion over the past few days, but denies a cough. She's been feeding well, and urine output has been pretty adequate. Mom notes that urine smells a little different. Her immunizations are up to date. Vitals include temperature, as we discussed. To this Today, it's 102.2, heart rate 140, respiratory rate 36. On examination, she's well, but a little fussy. Remainder exam is completely normal. So, Ken, for you, what, what what's on your differential for an infant like this who's presenting? Well, first off, I'm delighted we can see her in person. Um, <laughs> that makes sure. things these days much easier. And, of course, the differential for fever in a 10-month-old girl is tremendously wide. We're talking about UTIs today, and uh, we'll get to it in a second, that she's got about a 25% chance of having a UTI, which is quite high for just about anything that we would be looking at her for. I would say that with Justin's interest in physical exam, the first thing I would do is try to play with her. You, you may know about the uh, Yale observation scales that Paul McCarthy developed. He was trying to see how experienced pediatricians observe children and try to get into their heads as to what are you looking for and what are you looking at? And he realized after the first few that pediatricians, experienced pediatricians are incapable of doing the kind of observation that he wanted. They would come into the room and immediately start playing with the child. He actually coined the phrase, response to social overture. And by that, what he meant was, did they smile? Was the pediatrician able to elicit a smile? And this turned out to be probably the most important part of the Yale observation scales because he observed no child who smiled had a serious illness and no child with a serious illness smiled. So I think the first thing for me is to see if I can get this child to smile because that changes my list of whether there's something serious underlying all of this or whether we can just kind of proceed with 
something that is likely to take its course, treat her as an outpatient, and so forth. And with that in mind, being a white young girl under the age of a year with a high fever, no other source, to me, this is a UTI until proved otherwise. 25%, according to the UTI calculator that the folks at Pittsburgh provided us. Can we talk about that? That seems like a great resource that I use a lot. Can we incorporate that into practice? Is that official? Dr. Roberts approved? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So in our 2011 UTI guideline, we presented the data as they existed uh, about risk factors, risk factors for boys, risk factors for girls. And we could come up with different risk factors, the number you would need for two different thresholds, 1% and 2%. And we made a point of not identifying which one was high, but leaving that to the clinician, because I think we all have different risk tolerances and there may be differences depending on the family that's in front of you or the circumstance. Are you in a clinic? Are you in an ED? Are you in your office? Do you have the chance to see this child again? What have you? So we left that at 1% or 2%. The UTI calc was an application of those risk factors for a population at uh, Pittsburgh Children's so that they could give us absolute rates for what the various combinations would be. And as I said, the highest rate you can come up with before doing a urinalysis is a white girl with a high fever under the age of a year, right? And no other source of infection. And that's 25%. The only thing that I would caution is that the authors decided to make their decision for you about what was high and what was low. So uh, they decided that anything over 2% was a high rate and deserved a urinalysis and that anything less than 2% was not. And I think for some people, they might be in a situation where they say, I'd be willing to accept 1% as a threshold. And then you have to look at the number. The number is in small print on the UTI calculator. Their interpretation is in bold print on the calculator. For me, I've always advocated that when we're doing the, the clinical practice guidelines, the important thing is that we give people the number needed to test and then let them apply that to their circumstance. But there's no question that this is a valuable resource, particularly for people for, you know, I, I happen to have in my head what the risk factors are because I've been intimately involved with this. But for somebody, particularly somebody starting out or for somebody quickly trying to move through the clinic, having that on their phone and all I have to do is type in yes, no, and it's gonna give me a pretest probability, that's tremendously valuable. Can you uh, talk us through that first section of the UTI talk? What are the risks that are making us more concerned about the UTI or that are increasing the pretest probability of UTI? Well, one is the height of fever. Is it above 39 or below 39? Is there another source of fever, which is a little difficult because I think, as you know, as someone interested in physical exam, there's otitis media and there's otitis media. In many of the studies, having a diagnosis of otitis media, particularly retrospectively, does not reduce your likelihood of having a UTI. Uh, so we really do need to be circumspect about that one. But certainly if I found cellulitis, if there was point tenderness over a bone, something uh, other to hang my hat on, that would reduce the likelihood of a UTI. This has been confounded in older literature by 
using a positive culture as the definition of a UTI. So we have decades of recommendations that just because a child has bronchiolitis, for example, you still need to worry about a UTI. And that was based on them having a positive urine culture. If you also require pyuria for the diagnosis, then the rate of UTI as defined by pyuria and positive urine culture is less than 1% and relieves us of having to do urine cultures and catheterizations in every child with bronchiolitis just because they have bronchiolitis. The other risk factor is the age of the child, less than 12 months or older than 12 months. As with a number of these risk factors, I have no idea whether the actual cutoff is 12 months or six months or nine months and five days or 16 months, because these are kind of a priori things that people decide when they're doing their study. We'll look at kids, whether they're older than a year or less than a year. So we have that for older than a year. Certainly for boys, less than six months is higher than between six and 12 months. The more granular the data, the more precise we're able to be about these risk factors. But for now with the calculators, it would be their sex, their race, the height of fever, whether they have another source of the fever and their age. And I think it's nice using the UTI calculator. I'm, I'm happy that this is an approved form because that's a nice way to kind of, I think, approach the, the diagnosis of a UTI. And so presuming that, let's say you're the intern in the clinic and, and your clinic attending says, what do you want to do to work up this patient based on their high pretest probability of a UTI? What's your next, next step? And more specifically, should we be doing a method where we're in, in trying to collect a urine, do we put a bag on and see if we can do a bad urine? Do we try one of these quick wee methods where you're tapping on the back at 100 beats per minute or doing super pubic massage? Or is, are we holding the baby upside down? You know, wh- how badly do we need the urine? How do we get the urine? And is it okay if we get the urine in a bag? Tapping it a hundred times a minute. Are we also singing, uh, staying alive? While we're uh, yeah. Or another one bites the dust. Based, yeah. I think based on patient preferences. <laughs> so I, I will go back to my original thing about playing with the child. Okay. If this is a child I can get to smile. We've got time. Okay. I don't feel um, a rush. And so getting a urine by the most convenient method available works for me. If it's a quarter to five and the clinic closes at five o'clock, I will likely catheterize this child. If the child looks sick and worried me and I thought this child needs antibiotics right away or needs hospitalization right away, I would probably just go ahead and catheterize the child to get a specimen that was not only appropriate for urinalysis, but also for culture. 10 o'clock in the morning, we've got time. I'm in the office. I would get it by the easiest method available. And that's generally putting on the urine bag, realizing all I'm going to be able to do with that specimen is get a urinalysis. The quick we has, as far as I'm concerned, an excellent idea. And frankly, it's what we used in what we called a neonatal intensive care unit in the late 1960s, when we didn't have catheters small enough or other sorts of things, the urine bag would have enveloped half the child. Mm-hmm. So we would use some of those reflexes to stimulate the side, to put something cold over the suprapubic area. Some of the things that have come back 
now about stimulating the urine. Issues, there are two issues with it. One of them is what you're going to get is a voided specimen. All voided specimens in kids this young have a risk of contamination. Jill Tellis, Tellis, who's in England and was one of the people who helped write the 2007 guidelines in Britain, published some spot films from VCUGs and showed how little girls who are peeing against closed labia essentially are giving you a vaginal wash. The urine hits the labia, goes back through the vagina, and then only comes out when you have enough pressure from the, from the urine for it to leak out of the, the, uh, the labia. In uncircumcised boys, they also demonstrated in one of those films that the urine hits the end of the prepuce, comes and gives you a wash of the area under the foreskin, and then comes out. So whether you're collecting them in a bag or whether they're voiding, you have that risk. And if I remember correctly, when uh, Jonathan gave a, a presentation of his quick weave method at uh, PAS, the contamination rate in culturing those specimens was something like 35%. So much too high to be acceptable if that's what you're going to use it for. The other problem with the quick wee method is the number of hands it requires to hold the baby and redo the stimulation and get the specimen. So what you'd like to do is use two hands to hold the knees with your thumbs behind so that you can kind of spread the legs apart in a little girl and maybe get those labia a little bit apart. And you need someone to support the baby and someone to do the stimulation and someone to do the cup, right? So we're up to like six people now. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it also means you need to have a trained staff. This isn't, mm -hmm. it can be, as Jonathan showed, it certainly can be done. Uh, and I think most places are more readily set up to, to catch the urine in a bag than to do the quick wee method. But hey, you've got some experience with it, go for it. It's quicker, for sure, to get you the specimen. And then you can do a dipstick. And while you still have the child there, decide whether you need to catheterize them to get a urine specimen, to get a specimen suitable for culture. And my understanding, whether it's quick wee, whether it's a suprapubic massage or even a bad catheter, all you're doing is ruling out a UTI if it is a immaculate urine. Is that correct or no? Well, as you know, that's controversial. I put a lot of stock in the pyuria as to the other people who were writing the guideline. And so let me just explain the rationale for that briefly. You know, first of all, we kind of started with the principle of what self-respecting bacterial process doesn't cause polys to show up, right? So that was kind of one from first principles. But then there have been animal studies, kind of by the name of Glauser, was interested in figuring out how do scars form. And he did a number of experiments in animals where he gave them various medic medications to stop the inflammatory response, to kill the organism, to create the conditions that will allow us to figure out what is the important factor in causing a scar. And as it turns out, the model that he happened to use was of pyelonephritis, was of putting organisms in the kidney, clamping the ureter to cause a nice infection, and then seeing what he could do to either obviate uh, a scar forming or to, to have it form. And what he determined was it was the neutrophils that caused the scarring. Uh, a couple of years ago, after the challenge to this conclusion by my friends at Pittsburgh, I was part of an international conference on 
urinary tract infections. The first day was all basic science, and the second day had sessions on clinical UTIs. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me to ask the basic scientists, you who have studied, you've taken your entire career studying uropathogens, can you think of a way that E. coli could cause scarring of the kidney that does not go through neutrophils? Now, We've learned more about this process and realized that it's macrophages that set off the neutrophils, but the final common pathway appears to be the the neutrophils eating up the kidney, causing this inflammatory response. It's the inflammatory response that leads to the fibrosis that we call scarring, but it all came down to neutrophils at the end. So for me, pyuria helps distinguish asymptomatic bacteriuria which is just a positive urine culture uh, and demonstrates attachment of organism to the host seeing this as a UTI and issuing an inflammatory, issuing a call to neutrophils to come help out because the kidney is under attack. So I put a lot of stock in the pyuria. Is it 100%? Well, not if you use urine culture as your gold standard. So it becomes kind of by definition, if you're going to use urine culture as your definition, then pyuria is not 100%. If you require pyuria and a positive culture, then it is 100%. <laughs> and I, that's, that's great. I, I didn't realize this. But so it sounds like the risk of renal scarring is at least associated with the pyuria. But can you still have symptoms of a UTI, a fever with UTI? potential fussiness and dysuria from a UTI without the pyuria and therefore without risk of renal scarring, but still with clinical symptoms? Is that discussable or is that something that's like, probably not? That You certainly can in uh, older kids with obvious cystitis who don't worry you about pyelonephritis. Uh, the group that I've been most interested in, the two to 24-month-olds, or for that matter, from birth to 24-month-olds, pretty hard to distinguish cystitis from pyelonephritis, and we presume that if they have a high fever, it's going to be pyelonephritis. So again, we're getting into into definitions. There are certainly multiple papers about non-E. coli uropathogens like enterococcus that can tend, as a gram-positive coccus, tends not to cause pyuria. That's not to say that it doesn't and there's a study that was published a couple of years ago out of Turkey that I think is very instructive. Out of their 40-some examples of what appeared to be an enterococcal UTI by culturing the urine specimen that they got, there were some with pyuria. And when they came back a couple of days later, not having treated any of these kids, those who still had pyuria seemed to have a, a UTI. But for the majority of the others, when they came back and did a suprapubic aspiration, the enterococcus had cleared. Hmm. I don't know whether that's transient colonization. I don't know whether it's really UTI. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm not all that concerned about it. And this is particularly true in kids with intermittent catheterization that you're going to find a lot of enterococcus, but it's not clear that it's harmful. Hey, this is Brian Alverson. I am the guest speaker in the Bronchiolitis podcast on Cribsiders. I hope you'll join us. You can learn about why oxygen probably doesn't matter as much as you think it is, why suctioning your baby's nose probably is super important, and why high flu nasal cannula might not be the important thing you think it is. 
Now, I've also read that it's not just intercoccus, but maybe Klebsiella and Pseudomonas tend to also have less less likely to exhibit pyuria. Is that right? Than E. coli? Again, in terms of the culture, I find that very peculiar. We know what Klebsiella can do in a lung, and it is not at all shy about causing a massive inflammatory response in the lung. We know that it's not good for you to have one of these organisms in your CSF. I'm not sure what to make of them. I will say this, though, that a lot has been made of those organisms and that we should be worried about them. Let's just take some round numbers. Let's say that UTIs in febrile infants occur at a rate of about 5% of those febrile infants. Mm -hmm. It's at 5 to 7%. We're in that range. Now, if you go by, let's say, LE having a sensitivity somewhere around 90 to 95%, that means that only 5 to 10% of that, of that 5% with positive cultures don't have pyuria, which is between a half a percent and 1%. So now you're getting into the rate where we could explain this with a combination of asymptomatic bacteria and contamination. But even if we're missing them, that means for every 1,000 febrile infants we see, we're going to miss five. So you balance that against catheterizing all these kids and antibiotic treatment and so forth. I think Nader Shea pointed out in when we came up with numbers that said that the rate of uh, positive cultures without pyuria is comparable to the rate of asymptomatic bacteriuria. He pointed out that if you define it as asymptomatic bacteriuria, as I do, and define it as UTI, as he does, our trade-off is one-to-one. We're either missing it or over-treating it. And it sounds like even if you're missing it, the at least the chance of renal scarring is low. So the repercussions for missing it is not a long-term consequence. Is that fair to say? That's my sense of it, yes. And, you know, when we published the 2011 guidelines, we didn't, we weren't clever enough to talk about it as the two-step method. We talked about obtaining a urine. If you're not going to treat with an antibiotic and the child isn't all that ill, obtaining a urine specimen by any means, seeing if the urinalysis is positive and going from there as to whether you need to get a, a cat specimen for a culture. I got an email from a former resident who's now leading a uh, very busy ER in a very prestigious university. And he said, you know, I wish you had had one of us on the committee because this just isn't practical in a busy inner city ER. It was maybe two, three years after that, that uh, Kathy Shaw and Jane Lavelle at CHOP showed not only was it practical in their ER, but it reduced the number of catheterizations by more than a half, uh, from 63% to less than 30%. So it is practical. It does save kids the catheterizations. And whether we're missing something, if we if we are, it's at a very low rate. And to to take a step back, and just to make sure, as far as we we're talking a lot about pyuria, can we define pyuria? Is it is it three white blood cells? Is it ten? Is it based on Luke Gasterase? How how are we saying this is pyuria versus this was a white cell that someone uh, accidentally dribbled onto the uh, specimen collection? That's a great question. And it was a great question for many decades where we would talk about how many white cells per high power field, which, if you think about it, makes very little sense. 
the high power field of one specimen is exactly the same as the high power field of another specimen. But so you'd see five white cells per high power field, 10. Ellen Wald and Alejandro Oberman used white cells in a counting chamber and said 10 white cells per cubic millimeter, the same way we would look for white cells in the CSF and make it quantitative. I think, fortunately, since very few laboratories are willing to do that, it's very labor intensive to have a technician with a, uh, a hemocytometer actually feeding it in and counting the number of cells in the counting chamber. And of course, now we have automated ones. But I think the leukocyte esterase that has been demonstrated to be as sensitive as the white blood cell number kind of revolutionizes all of that. It's so easy to do the dipstick and look at the leukocyte esterase. So let me anticipate your next question. What's positive? Is it trace? One plus, two plus, three plus, moderate, high? What we can say is the more white cells, the higher the leukocyte esterase, the more likely this is going to be a UTI. You can say that. If you want to increase your sensitivity, because this is a screening test for who are we going to catheterize and get a urine culture, then the highest sensitivity is going to be with any leukocyte esterase. Mm. Right? So kind of why would you discard trace and come up with some arbitrary thing? Now, in that study I referred to from CHOP, they used moderate LE. And the fact is, if you compare moderate and mild and trace and one plus, however you're designating these things, you get to about 95% perhaps of all those you're going to call positive with the moderate and then you increase it stepwise like to 97% to 99%. So I wouldn't quibble. I would just say any is useful as the most sensitive screening test. That makes sense. And I think the UTI calc online recently, or maybe I just noticed it, had the change where now it specifically says, do not put per high power field. It's requesting it in uh, a cubic millimeter. Remember, this is from Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh was the place that first did the enhanced urinalysis mm. where they read the number of white cells in the hemocytometer I and also looked at gram stain bacteria. Find very few labs are willing to gram stain a urine specimen or to do the hemocytometer. If you're using UTI calc, you're essentially going to depend on the LE. Mm -hmm. Fair, totally. Can I make one other observation. In our Please. misspoke in the UTI guideline in 2011, and we got it right in the abstract that we're looking for pyuria. In the text, it says pyuria or positive nitrite or bacteria. And those, I think, are misleading. Uh, I have asked many people around the world who have studied asymptomatic bacteriuria to say, do you get a positive nitrite? Because all that's going to indicate is that you've got a bacterium in the urine. Now, does it indicate that it is a metabolically active bacterium? So maybe it does indicate a UTI? and not just the presence of bacteria. And I've never been able to get the answer to that question. Same thing with seeing bacteria. If you see them on the urinalysis without a gram stain, I think the people in the lab in which I last worked saw that on every specimen, certainly every voided specimen. And we, we learned to ignore it. On a gram stain specimen, it shows you that the organism is there and it gives you a rough assessment that there's probably 10 to the fifth. What it doesn't tell me is whether that's asymptomatic bacteria or a UTI. So for my money, 
only thing we're really looking at in the urinalysis is whether there is a positive LE. That's a great pearl. Uh, yeah. Pyuria is the big thing. And I've also been like nitrites. I was always told that means that there's a bacteria, but it sounds like that is maybe plus one for asymptomatic bacteria, but not a plus one for a potentially renal scarring cause of fever. Is that is that fair to say? that? I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's the way I've been trying to think through it and trying to get people who have data and have done um, studies of the sensitivity and specificity of various parts of the urinalysis. What they generally will report is the sensitivity and specificity for leukocyte esterase, sensitivity and specificity for LE, and then the sensitivity and specificity for the combination. What I have not seen anybody publish is the sensitivity and specificity for a positive nitrite with a negative LE. Uh, next question would be like, how would you approach using IV versus like PO antibiotics? Does, you know, if you diagnose that UTI, if, if I give them a slug of IV antibiotics, will that prevent or help revisits or, or having them have to come back to the emergency department or your urgent care? Well, this is probably uh, a decision that you make with every child for whom you're going to prescribe antibiotics, which is trying to do a rough assessment of how likely are they to get the prescription filled and to take the antibiotic and so forth. I wouldn't be talking about IV uh, unless this is a child that I thought needed to be rehydrated or needed the IV for some other reason. But I am, ceftriaxone is certainly a, a consideration. And I would use that if this were a, a child who couldn't tolerate oral anything, was vomiting, and I felt I needed to get something quickly in. I don't know how good I am about, or how good any of us really is, about assessing adherence and whether people are likely to get the prescription filled and give it. But I would be more likely to trust people if I were in my clinic or if I were in my office because they made an appointment and they came in to be seen. In an ED, you might make a case to say, hmm, they bypassed all of those. They either don't have a reliable source of care. I'm not so sure that they will get this filled. So just to be sure, I'd like to give a, an IM dose of ceftriaxone and then I'll give them a prescription. That's very reasonable also. So I think it would depend on the family. It would depend on the setting. Depends. Okay. okay. So, so if we're, we're, say we're, we decide, you know, this, this child didn't need an IV place, won't need IV antibiotics and, and say we're seeing them in a clinic. If we're basing our treatment based on pyuria and we don't have a culture, what are the empiric antibiotics you're reaching for for these patients? Well, let's go back to the urinalysis. If the urinalysis has a positive LE, I would start treatment presumptively. The likelihood of this being a UTI is very, very high. If the urinalysis is clean, I would neither catheterize this baby nor would I give an antibiotic. I guess I should have said one of the other advantages nowadays, this is for your previous question, is we have the electronic medical record. If we're lucky enough to have access to that at the time that we're seeing the child, I probably would be moved to look to see how well they've kept appointments in the past, whether they have been no-shows, that sort of thing, and making the decision about whether this is going to be a parental parenteral antibiotic, an IM ceftriaxone, or an oral, if I think they are likely to come back. 
I would generally start with a first-generation cephalosporin. This is something that was taught to me by one of the junior faculty we hired some years ago. I had been in the camp of using third-generation cephalosporins, cefixine, in part because that was the antibiotic that was used in the oral trial and showed that it was equivalent to starting off with a parenteral antibiotic for a couple of days and then going to oral. So it's the one that's probably going to have the least resistance and would be useful to use. It also worries me about overusing third-generation cephalosporins. And when our junior faculty member came and said, why aren't you just using Keflex? It's cheap, it tastes good, and it works. We said, well, let's look at it. And we looked at the E. coli from urine specimens from our, that we were generating for our lab from children from the community, and he was right, uh, and that it had a very high success rate, at least in the microbiology lab. So that convinced me that a first generation that's cheap, very well tolerated, tastes good, kids are willing to take it, makes a lot of sense over spending $100 for a third generation cephalosporin. I've seen some reviews lately that suggest we should be using the third generation because they are the least likely to fail. Uh, again, I think the failure rate, if you happen to know the sensitivities in your community, which we were lucky enough to do, is that you may be able to get away with starting with the first generation cephalosporin. I have a the issue is not to use a MOX. That's the one thing to underscore. Well, let's say that we are able to get the patient to eat, to take the cephalaxin. They're tolerating it well. What are we doing for duration of therapy? I was always taught that antibiotic therapy has to either be a multiple of five or a number of weeks. What are you, what's the standard recommendation for how long we're, we're prescribing this medicine? That's interesting because I thought the usual teaching was it had to be a football score. Yeah. Football score. <laughs> oh, nice. That's good too. Right? 7, 10, or 14. So <laughs> we wrestled with this like crazy in the 2011 guidelines. The only head-to-head -head study I knew of about treatment was that six weeks was no better than 14 days, which is back from decades ago, right? And even the the various trials that were done, there were some that suggested that seven days was adequate. So we said seven to 14 days, hoping that we could put in the areas for research that somebody ought to do a trial, a head-to-head -head trial of seven days versus 10 days, of 10 days versus 14. Right. So I, I would say that a week would be reasonable. Now, there is a trial that has just been concluded of five days versus 10 days. Uh, it's not out yet. I expect it'll be out in the next year. Dr. Hoberman has finished enrolling the patients and they're in the process of analyzing the data. And if that comes out that five days is as good as 10, we're going to be home free with five days. Nice. So currently seven, but stay tuned. And within a year, maybe it'll be five. Could be. And then that'll ruin the football score teaching them. <laughs> well, field goal and a safety. Field goal and a safety. Fair enough. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm going to start. I'm just going to start prescribing six days from now on. And Fair enough. Give, give everyone a heart attack. Yeah. Oh, oh no. No, you, no, you can't do that. That would be like prescribing a full nine days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't do that. If you use the word full, you can get away with it, but it just full nine. No, it doesn't. Full nine and a half days. <laughs> All right. So our, my next question is something that I always have problems with. I can never remember. And I feel like 
the way we practiced back when I was a resident is a completely different way than we practice now. Who do we get imaging on? Like whether it's a ultrasound or a VCUG, I, I feel like I'm just really confused on this all the time. And when, I feel like that comes up. Yes. When do we do imaging? After the first urinary tract infection, after three. While they're hospitalized, two weeks later. Okay, so let's take the first part first. What imaging test should be done? In 2011, we really wanted to focus on the VCUGs, right, rather than the ultrasounds. We started revising the 1999 guideline in 2004, and at the PAS meeting, Eduardo Guerin, who was of Florida, presented a late-breaking abstract that he was doing a double-blind study of prophylaxis and showed that it didn't matter whether you had reflux or not, the, the prophylaxis didn't seem to make a difference, right? So we got on him that he had to publish that. And over the subsequent six years, there were a total of six randomized controlled trials, which in meta-analysis did not show a benefit of prophylaxis in kids with reflux. So if that were the case, we were wondering, what's the point in finding out about reflux? We took the data from the six trials. Actually, it's a longer story because we wrote all of the authors of those six studies and got them just to refine the data and send it to us for two to 24-month-olds with febrile UTIs who were randomized to get prophylaxis or not, and looking at the outcome measure being whether they got a recurrence. And it showed that the higher the grade of reflux, the more likely you were to have a recurrence, whether you got prophylaxis or not, right? Mm -hmm. So the traditional teaching at the time had been because reflux is going to increase your chances of having a recurrence, everybody should be tested for reflux. But let me give you an alternative way of looking at it, is that most kids didn't have a recurrence. So instead of saying reflux is a marker for recurrence, high recurrence risk, how about we look at it the other way and say recurrence is a marker for the likelihood of having high-grade reflux. Because if you look at it that way, then 85% of kids don't need a VCUG after their first UTI. If you wait for those that have a recurrence, that's about 15%. And if you do the recurrence, if you do the VCUG then, you have a much higher yield of kids with high-grade reflux. And those who didn't have any reflux at all also likely did not have a recurrence. So you didn't have to put them through a, a VCUG. Saving cost, saving radiation, saving discomfort sounded like a good thing to do. The wrinkle in there was then, if that was that the VCUG should not be performed routinely, what about ultrasound? You know, frankly, one of the things we were concerned about was, is everybody ready to throw out all the imaging? Because one of the things that the VCUG, well, excuse me, that the ultrasound could do is that it would pick up kids with uh, obstructive disease, UPJ obstruction, uh, ureteral junction obstruction, and although that was only a couple of percent, if we picked up the kids' duplication and pelvic kidneys and other sorts of things, that was probably doing them a, a service. It turned out about 13% of kids would have an abnormal ultrasound, only about 2 or 3% were actionable. And we kind of put that on the back burner because at the time we were doing this, good high-quality prenatal ultrasounds were not universal. So we recognized that when it was time to revise the UTI guideline, we were going to have to look to see whether or not the yield of an ultrasound after first UTI 
was going to be negated by universal prenatal ultrasounds. If you could pick up all the kids with obstructive lesions before birth, pick up all the kids with bilateral hydronephrosis from their posterior urethral valves, then you might not need an ultrasound. But we figured at least as of 2011, it didn't include radiation, it didn't include discomfort, does include some cost. But I think the next frontier will be, can you just do point of care ultrasound? That to my knowledge has not been studied, but certainly has to be something for us to keep in mind because that may be the middle ground between sending the kids off for an expensive ultrasound if they had a normal prenatal ultrasound and just doing a point of care ultrasound. So that just to the timing. Okay, I'm sorry, Justin. Well, I just want to, I want to, I'm excited about the timing, but I want to make sure I teach back and understand that. So it's for uh, the first febrile UTI, the guideline right now is still to get an ultrasound, but that it's only to really look for anatomical abnormalities that might be actionable, which is probably close to two or 3%. And now it's probably even less because a lot of those abnormalities would have been picked up on prenatal ultrasound. That's correct. Um, then let me let me ask you to keep going on as far as timing and then next steps if there is a positive finding on the ultrasound. Well, one other paper I should quote, which would be in terms of risk that <clears throat> the folks from Pittsburgh were involved in. We know that ultrasound isn't a very good screen for reflux. It shouldn't be. The only thing that ultrasound can show you is if there's a dilated viscous. If there's something hollow that's dilated or if there is something that has fluid in it, what have you, right? So it makes sense that if it's going to pick up any reflux, it would pick up grade five, possibly grade four, but it certainly isn't going to pick up lower grades. And what they demonstrated was that of those who had the highest grades of reflux, about two thirds of them were also picked up by the ultrasound. So the ultrasound will pick up the two to 3% that have anatomic lesions, but they're also going to pick up, you know, when I say two thirds, it's two thirds of the 6% (laughs) that have grade four reflux. High grade reflux, got it. So it's useful. It certainly isn't uh, the definitive test, but it does make sense to screen the kids with ultrasound right now. Timing, there's concern, and there was concern by the radiologist in our 2011 guideline that if you do the ultrasound too promptly and too well, that what you may pick up, in fact, is edema in the kidney from pyelonephritis, and that that might give you a a misinterpretation, particularly if you were to repeat the study later and have the kidney look smaller, so you might think that it's been shrinking, when in fact, it was just edematous the first time. So for optimal use of the ultrasound, it would be good to wait for a couple of days until the inflammation has subsided some. We have to think this one through about the obstructive lesions and whether we want to wait on them. But again, if we have good prenatal ultrasonography universally, and many of those will have been picked up, it may not be necessary to do any of this acutely. Certainly for the child who doesn't respond to therapy, it would be useful to go ahead and get an ultrasound and make sure we're not dealing with pyonephrosis, uh, renal abscess, that sort of thing. So let's say the ultrasound, we do an ultrasound a few days after they are home and doing well, 
and it does pick up what looks to be grade four or five reflux. Are these the patients we're going to refer to VCUG or who are the patients we're referring to VCUG and what outcomes are we doing given the trials that suggest prophylaxis don't decrease renal scarring, if I'm correct? Uh, right. What are we doing with the findings from an abnormal VCUG? Okay. So um, first off, we've gotten the VCUG for one of two reasons, both of which qualify as saying we're getting it because it's indicated and not because it's routine. One of them is that the ultrasound is abnormal, and the other is that the child's had a recurrence. Because as I said, it's the children with higher grades of reflux that are more likely to have a recurrence. Meaning their second UTI before age two, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, their second UTI anytime. And that's even if they have a normal ultrasound? Yes. Great. Okay. The rate of scarring after a first febrile UTI is really quite low, particularly if you're able to eliminate from consideration the kids who have uh, what they call pre-existing scarring, right? This is kind of a bugaboo about all the, the scarring literature is that there are some kids at the time of their first UTI who have scars at kind of baseline. And these largely may be children who have congenital dysplasia of the kidney that we're interpreting as a scar, more common in boys than in girls. So if you exclude them, the rate of acquired scarring after a first UTI is about 3%. After a second UTI, it's about 28%. But remember, it's 28% in many fewer children than the number that had a first UTI. That's only 15% of those who had a first UTI. So the absolute number is actually quite small. As to what you're going to do about that when you do a, a VCUG is to first grade the VC, the reflux. And if it's grade one or two, you're not going to do very much about it. Grade four or five, that's a child where I would refer such a child to be followed by a urologist. What that urologist is likely to do would be to give a trial of prophylaxis to, in case there's any chance that medical management might obviate a third UTI. And it's the ones who would have breakthrough UTI that they operate on. For some urologists, some urologists will include grade three, and for them, they certainly would give medical management. Some would go right ahead on grade five to surgery. There's very, very little data about uh, randomizing kids with grade five to medical management to see if it's helpful, because the prevailing notion is that if you have grade five reflux, you ought to have it treated operatively. Let's talk a little bit more about the word prophylaxis. Great. Okay. If yeah. what we mean by that is trying to prevent another UTI. Before I would reach for the prescription pad, I'd put my hand on the left side of this baby's belly because it's pretty clear after the age of two that one of the biggest risk factors is what's called bowel and bladder dysfunction, uh, which we can dumb down for people like me to constipation. So. If you feel a bowel full of stool balls on the left side of the bowel, to me, Miralax is something I would reach for before I would reach for antimicrobial prophylaxis. The best UTI prophylaxis, Miralax. Yes, right. That's been demonstrated certainly in the river trial for the kids over the age of two, that the uh, 
kids with bowel and bladder dysfunction had the best response to antimicrobial prophylaxis. I don't know if that's because it gave them diarrhea and cleaned them <laughs> up. But I don't know of any head-to-head trial of Miralax versus trimethoprim sulfa, but I put my money on Miralax. The reason that it showed up so well in the kids over the age of two was that they defined bowel and bladder dysfunction on the basis of issuing a questionnaire to parents. And the questionnaire has only been validated in kids over the age of two, so they didn't even try it in kids under the age of two. Pretty clear, we've all seen kids under the age of two going through toilet training who are withholding and who have palpable stool on that left side. And if we're talking about kids under two, I think the guidance that we can give families about making sure that they're keeping these kids regular, keeping their their stools loose by diet, if necessary, by Miralax. I think that's as good a preventive measure as we have. And actually, in uh, one Latin American country, they talked about increasing things like fruits and vegetables in the diet in the second year of life as preventing UTIs. Mm. So to me, prophylaxis is not synonymous with an antimicrobial agent. Mm-hmm. But it's something that all of us as clinicians should be paying attention to, which is the bowel habits of the, the infant. That's great. I like that a lot. This has all been a great summary of all the guidelines and, and is wildly helpful. These guidelines that you're the author of that we discussed are from two months to 24 months. Where is that deadline coming from or where is that uh, demarcation coming from? And what can be applied to younger than two months? What can be applied to greater than two years? That's a great question. And we're often asked about uh, what about the kids under two months? The reason for the guideline being limited to two to 24-month-olds, remember, we started the first version of this in the 1990s. Uh, that's where the data were. And we wanted this guideline to be part of a, an evidence-based guideline series from the academy and not just our our thoughts. And actually the data that were there about zero to two month old were conflicting and confusing. So we decided let's stick with where the evidence is. And that was the two to 24 month old. The rationale was also that this is a time period of relatively high risk compared to eight to 12 year olds. And that the risk of scarring appeared to be greatest under the age of four. Since 2011, there's been a lot of interest in the zero to two month olds. And, you know, I hope we help precipitate some of that. When you go to all the work of doing a clinical practice guideline, by the time you're finished with your uh, assessment of the literature, you kind of know where the evidence is vulnerable and where the holes are. And this was clearly an area as was how long should kids be treated? So we put those in the areas for research and we're seeing some of that literature now come up. Well, one of the confusing things about zero to two month olds is how much can we rely on pyuria? The driving force in getting cultures, let's say particularly under the age of one month in a child with fever is not so much the UTI, it's the bacteremia and the concern about meningitis. So all of those kids are likely to get not only pan-cultured, but antibiotics administered because of the concern for bacteremia. Mm -hmm. So with that, people send off urine cultures. And the urine cultures may be positive in the absence of pyuria. So how good is pyuria? 
Well, that required the cleverness of Alan Schroeder to say, we don't know if those positive cultures without pyuria are true UTIs or not, but what we can pretty much surmise are true UTIs are if the urine culture and the blood culture are both positive for the same organism, that's probably an active UTI. Mm-hmm. When he put UTI, a true UTI, a series of true UTIs together, what he found was that pyuria was present greater than 96% of the, the time. And again, it depends a little bit on what you use as a definition. Since then, the Cooperman and PCAR network have looked at pyuria in kids under the age of two months and find that it's every bit as good under two months as it is over two months. So it could well be in the next iteration of the guidelines, if these data continue to come out as they are, that the guidelines don't need to start at two months, but can start at birth. Great, great. Particularly prenatal ultrasonography is going to be useful, and we have that going for us. One of the things we're always concerned about is missing posterior urethral valves in a boy in that first month of life. Uh, We may be able to have other ways of tumbling to that. So it sounds like you've given us a little glimpse at what we could expect in the future in terms of these guidelines. I want to thank you so much for that. I was wondering whether, as we we wrap up, because I want to be really cognizant of your time as well, what would be your main take-home points you want our listeners to to walk away with today? I think it's the notion of suspecting UTIs, particularly in little girls under the age of a year with high fever and no other source, as we talked about it. As well as little girls, we didn't talk about circumcision, but certainly uncircumcised boys have a phenomenally high rate as well. And their rate remains high. Actually, one of the first studies that tumbled to that was looking at military recruits. And uncircumcised military recruits have a higher history and prevalence of UTIs than circumcised military recruits. So we're talking many years beyond infancy. Certainly, circumcised males have a very low risk, but after that, you can use the UTI calc to get yourself an estimate of pre-test probability, but don't use a voided specimen for uh, culture that does need to be catheterized. If you have a negative urinalysis, I think you can avoid catheterization in a large percentage of the children. Excellent. And if there's a final thing, none of this is the final word on the subject. I think... (laughs) What we have seen in the last 20 years for sure is a lot of head scratching, a lot of good studies being done, uh, and they're continuing to come out. I think over the next five years or so, we're going to have more answers. We may even have a better test than leukocytesterase to tell us that there's inflammation going on that's injuring the kidney. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Urine procalcitonins. (laughs) <laughs> that's going to be the next not so much whether <laughs> engal or something else that shows trauma to the kidney as well as inflammation we'll have to see this is great thank you so much anything that you would like us to plug anything that you want our listeners to check out or anything that you want to promote all of the other uh, uh, podcasts of Cribsiders Amazing. <laughs> Excellent. The, the Cribsiders uh, self-promo. We love it. Yeah. So thank again. So thank you so, so much for coming. We are so grateful to have you. This has been wonderful. I, I learned a ton. I think it's going to be super helpful for the audience. This is great. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. Nits for the kids. Yes. 
get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Tassin Kareem. Thank you guys for joining us. Tonight, I've been Justin Lee Burke. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. Thank you.